Evening, everyone. Can I ask you to grab a seat and uh, reach for a Bible and turn, if you were, to page 850 if you're in one of our Bibles, Mark chapter 14. If you're in your own, page 850. We're going to spend uh, the next, I think, I can't remember, eight, nine weeks, something like that, working our way through Mark 14 to 16, the final big section of Mark's gospel. And uh, we get to the start of it this evening. So Mark 14, 1 to 11, I'm going to pray and then we're going to read God's word together. Our Father, as we turn our minds very deliberately now to your son as he goes to the cross, we pray very simply that his love for us would so capture our hearts that we would overflow in love for him. Uh, that's not something we can generate in ourselves. It's not something a preacher can generate. That's the work of your spirit. And so we pray that he would be at work in the hearts of each one of us and in our church family too, so that collectively we might all help each other to cherish and love Christ above all things as he went to the cross for us. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen. Let me read to us then uh, Mark 14 and verses 1 to 11. I should have said I'm Paul, by the way. I'm the minister around here, and uh, if we've not met, it is great to meet you. I hope you can stick around at the end, and uh, we can spend some time together. But Mark 14, starting at verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to, how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster jar, flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him great if you could keep that open in front of you. There's also an outline on the back of a little bit of paper that was inside your Bible when you came in. Um, there was a question that I was asked as a student that has stuck with me for um, a long time since. I know you're thinking I must have a very good memory. Uh, it was so long ago since I was a student, but I've thought about it often over the years, and I, I wanted to share it with you. We were asked if um, the, the people who know you best had to sum up who you are as a person in a single sentence. So they're talking about your values, your qualities, your strengths, your weaknesses. What is it that they would say about you? 
And then there was a follow-up to it. Whatever you think they would say today, what would you most want them to be saying about you a year from now? Or if they're remembering you and talking about you over dinner at some point, 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, how would you like to be remembered? Uh, We meet this evening a, a woman who has very little going for her as far as we can tell. She's not a member of the elite. She probably didn't have much of an education. We don't even know her name, interestingly. But she crashes a dinner party and then does something so beautiful that wherever you go in the world, you find people talking about her and wanting to be like her. But what's intriguing is that alongside her extravagant devotion, we're going to meet people who respond to Jesus very differently. We'll see an act of intimate betrayal and some outright hostility. And the reason that Mark collates that sort of breadth of responses to Jesus here at the start of this last section of his gospel is because he's wanting us to reflect on our own heart response to Jesus. And that's why we've got the two points that you'll see on the sheet. First, the king on the cross, what is he worth? Uh, I think we started this series two, two and a half years ago, something like that. And we've uh, reached the home straight of Mark's gospel. We know, I guess, most of us that Jesus died on the first Good Friday. By this point, Mark 14, it's Wednesday. Okay, so we're just a couple of days before Jesus' death. This is the moment that everything has been building up to. Uh, Mark's gospel often described as the death of Jesus with a long introduction. And uh, we all know that the symbol that stands at the heart of Christianity isn't a little crib to remind us of Jesus' birth or a book to remind us of his, not even a stone to remind us of his resurrection, but a cross. That's what stands at the heart of everything. It's weird that we should be so excited about the cross in one way. Moses uh, died at the age of 120, we think, after 40 years of busy ministry. Buddha died at the age of 80, quite peacefully, we're told. Confucius at 72. Muhammad, 62, surrounded by his harem. No one ever really talks about their deaths very much. Jesus died 33 years old, we think, after three years of public ministry. Uh, He was crucified naked between criminals. He was degraded and humiliated. And yet his death is not just the most famous in history, but it is also celebrated and cherished like no other. And it's clear in Mark that Jesus knew that it was coming. Uh, Earlier in the the gospel, he told his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They'll deliver him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. So he knew what was coming. And even though he had all of the power of God at his fingertips, He makes no effort at all to avoid his fate, but welcomes it. He says, I must die, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we're going to read through this passion narrative, the account of Jesus' death this term, And we will discover the emotional agony that Jesus endured in these final few hours and denied 
three times by one of his closest friends, abandoned by all of them. Uh, we'll read of physical agony, crown of thorns, whipping, beatings, nails, all before the, the crucifixion itself. A death so brutal that the Roman writer Cicero said that no Roman should even think of the word, let alone say it out loud. Worst of all, the spiritual agony. Jesus will describe himself drinking the cup of his father's wrath. For as we read, all we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on the cross, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. All of that is to come. But as I say, right here at the start of this final section, Mark puts this passage about the ways that different people are responding to him to make sure that we're, probably invest we're properly invested as we read the account of his death. We're not just reading ancient history. He's asking us, what do we make of the king on the cross? What's it worth? What's he worth to us? Uh, one of the ways that Jesus makes the point is by drawing this contrast between the relative priority of his death on the one hand and doing good to the poor on the other. Uh, the, the reason that the onlookers become so indignant in verse 4 is that they think this woman's behavior is a waste. Surely she should have sold the perfume and given the money to the poor, they say. And within Judaism, they're, they're nearly but not quite right. Um, God is the God of the outsider. He's the God of community. And so when he was giving his law to his people. He told them that they had to love their neighbor and care for the poor among them. And in the church today, that same priority continues. We're meant as a family of God's people to love one another sacrificially from the heart. We're meant to do what we can to help each other out, even financially. So Jesus isn't dismissing their social concern, but in setting care for the poor over and against her devotion to Jesus, they are missing the point. Uh, back in chapter 12, interestingly, Jesus said the second greatest commandment is that you love your neighbor as yourself. But the first was to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that is what this woman was doing as she anointed Jesus' body so extravagantly on the eve of his death. Whatever was going on in her head, how much she understood, we don't know. But somehow, she seems to be recognizing that Jesus and his death are, are worthy of the sort of total love that is reserved for God alone. And her actions ask us what value we place on it. So here's God the Son. And he is the one who made us and gives us life and breath. He is the one who is the source of every good thing that we enjoy. Our time and talents, our mind and money, our bodies, the, the opportunities we have, the people we love. All of them are, are gifts from him to us. And even though he's God, he chose to make himself a servant and to die for us, so that it might be possible for us to be forgiven, to know God, to be welcomed into his family, to be guaranteed a place in heaven. 
we sometimes sing, uh, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. What's really going on in my heart? What does he mean to me? Let's explore that in the second point, the king on the cross. What's your response? And uh, different characters, as ever in narrative, you meet different characters. Which one do you identify with most? Which one describes where I'm at today? Which one describes where I want to be in a year, 10 years, 20 years? Let's start with outright hostility. And uh, you may have spotted that Mark frames the account of this dinner party in between two bits about the conspiracy to have Jesus killed that set the context for the story. So from verse one, let's just read it again. It was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Just to try and color that in a bit. Passover was a, a crazy time of year in Jerusalem. Um, we think the usual population in Jerusalem was about 30,000. But uh, when it was Passover time, that would swell to around 180,000. So if you've ever been in St. Andrews during the open, that's the kind of vibe that was going on. And uh, Jews would come from everywhere to remember the way that God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt centuries earlier. Every household had to offer a Passover lamb as a sacrifice in the temple. Then they'd share a big family meal, and that was followed straight after by another week-long celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a time of national pride and spiritual renewal. If you could kind of add together Thanksgiving, Independence Day, Christmas, Remembrance Day, pile it all into one, uh, you'll see it made for an atmosphere that was politically volatile. Um, the, the Romans were worried that the Jews would launch some kind of national uprising, so they put increased security all over the place, and everybody on edge. And then you add to that into the mix just how popular Jesus was among the masses. Um, when he entered Jerusalem a few days earlier, they'd spread their cloaks on the ground for him and proclaimed their allegiance to him as God's forever king. They marveled at his teaching. They were hanging on his every word. So we can see why his opponents, the chief priests and scribes, even though they were desperate to see him dead, thought, well, we can't arrest him publicly, not while all of this is going on, because who knows what might kick off. And so they had to act by stealth instead. They'll take any kind of treachery. They just want him gone. And then enter Judas, verse 10. Judas Iscariot was one of the 12. He went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Uh, and what's sad is how close to Jesus, Judas had been. He was one of the 12, so he'd been hanging around with Jesus, watching his miracles, listening to his sermons for three years. But in the end, he valued Jesus so little that he was willing to hand him over, we told elsewhere, for just 30 pieces of silver. I don't know where you think we'd see that kind of outright hostility today. I suspect it's the person who comes to St. Andrews 
and is absolutely clear that they want nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, maybe they used to go to church. Judas is kind of like that, I guess. Or maybe they've just never rated Jesus at all like the scribes, but there is no way that they will let Jesus interfere with the way that they want to live their life. They're going to define their identity. They're going to decide how they're going to live. And the only people they want in their life are those who are going to affirm and celebrate all of their choices. So there is zero room in their life for a king who says, you've got to love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You've got to obey my teaching. There may not be open anger expressed towards Jesus by them, but I wonder if, like me, you think this is the default approach to Jesus in our town today. Call it the, the cult of self, because the person on the throne of my life is me, and it's definitely not Jesus. There's no room for him. And the root of that attitude is always the same. Uh, I look at the king on the cross. Here's the most precious thing in the universe. And I think, I just don't value him all that highly. I want to say that puts me on a par with someone who's holding the, the crown jewels in their hands. Or maybe the cure for cancer. And they look at it and think, well, I just don't know what all the fuss is about. And chuck it away. I'd rather just get on with my life. And what we're saying this term, if you're in that boat today, is why not take a, another look at the king on the cross with us Sunday by Sunday? Block these dates out in your diary and come every week. And you might be surprised at what you discover him to be worth. That's response one, outright hostility. I've called the second warm hesitation. Uh, the lead characters this time are the other guests at the dinner party. I've battled with this title. Maybe you can come up with a better subheading for me here. But I've called their response warm. Um, because when you look at them, these guys aren't plotting to kill Jesus. Uh, they're not writing blog posts, I hate Jesus. They are close enough to Jesus that they've been invited to dinner with him on the penultimate night of his life. So they're probably disciples. But when they meet someone who is so lavish in her devotion to Christ, they're convinced that she's taking it too far. So in verse 5, they turn on her directly. The, the scold, they scolded her. That's pretty strong. Uh, literally, it means something like they flared their nostrils at her. I don't know if it... I don't really think I ever flare my nostrils at anyone, but maybe someone's done that to you. But you can picture gritted teeth. You can picture hostility, disapproval, that, oh, my words, have you seen what she is doing? The, the anger that is being uh, thrown at her. It's actually a pretty intimidating scene. And it's all a bit back to front. Because you've got this group of people who should be the most committed disciples in the world. They're not just people who follow Jesus on Instagram from afar. They're in his WhatsApp group. They're invited around for dinner with him. But instead of pouring out their lives in devotion to him, they are attacking the only person who is. So they're superficially warm, but they're hesitant and double-minded towards him. Where do you reckon we find that today? 
you certainly find it in, in the world, don't you? One writer says, um, I love this line, the world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. So a, a little bit of Jesus and popping to church every now and then is fine in the eyes of just about everybody. Uh, similarly, if we're talking about devotion, if you devote yourself wholeheartedly to almost anything in the world, to success in the field of sport or business or academia, even to the pursuit of love, very few people will find fault with you. But if you devote all that you have and all that you are to Jesus and to serving him, then you'll be written off as a fanatic like that. So we definitely see this attitude in the world. More relevant here is that the same attitude also exists all too often in the one place it should never be found, which is in a church. This is just my observation. You can do with it what you want. I reckon over the years in, in St. Andrews and elsewhere where I've served, it's often been Christian friends and family members who have been the most indignant and disapproving when people are really sold out in service of Christ. They ask, what do you mean you want to work for a church? It's just such a waste of a good education. We think it, it's great that you love Jesus. We just don't want you to let him take over your life. And it is because even though they go to church, they still don't get just how precious his death on the cross is. And so they end up prizing and valuing and wanting us to prize and value other things above Jesus. And they treat us like a nut job if we don't share their outlook. Uh, the writer J.C. Ryle says, if you're ever criticized for serving Jesus, uh, we should bear such charges patiently and remember they're as old as Christianity itself. And then he goes further. He says, actually, what you should do is pity those who attack you. Because he says, if I understand the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for me, I will never think anything too good or too costly to give to Christ. He says, I'll fear wasting my time and my talents and my money and my affections on the things of the world but I'll never be afraid of wasting them on Jesus. And so we come to this act of extravagant devotion. Uh, we've had people who should have been leading the way in devotion to Jesus who are missing the point completely. And now we have a complete outsider, it seems, who gets it beautifully right. Not even invited to dinner. Like I say, we don't know her name. But she's the one who sees the true worth of the king on the cross. And she's the one who gives him the honor that he deserves. So we're picturing the scene. Everyone's happily munching away. Maybe they're at dessert by this stage. Who knows? Sticky toffee pudding, bit of custard, maybe a bit of cream as well. And in walks this woman with a jar of perfume. Uh, pure nard was, I'm told, uh, didn't know this, imported from India. So it was pretty expensive. Um, the value of it, this 300 denarii, that's a, a year's wages for a laborer. So what's that, 20, 25 grand, something like that. So this isn't just a can of Lynx Africa that she found lying around in the back of a drawer and happened to present to Jesus. This is the proper stuff. 
it may have been a family heirloom. It may have been something she'd been saving for her daughter's wedding day. We don't know. But by now, everybody is staring open-mouthed as she breaks the jar, 20 grand, and pours the entire contents onto Jesus' head. It is an extravagant act. It is dramatic. It is a huge sacrifice. It, it is unembarrassed. It is all-consuming devotion. She sees his worth, so she gives him her all. They don't like it. They think she's gone too far. And maybe some of us are with them. But Jesus is having none of their scolding. I love the way he steps in to protect her. Just in the midst of all of this, here is the great shepherd protecting his sheep when they're being attacked. Leave her alone, he says. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Beautiful thing. Uh, the point is that she's a model disciple. Her story's here because this is how we're all meant to be responding to Jesus as we watch him on his journey to the cross in Mark 14 and 15. If we understand his worth, we're being told that our life will be marked by beautiful, costly devotion to Jesus and his work. And people will say, well, what a waste. And we'll think, what a privilege. There's nothing I can do apart from this. Uh, the phrase then that I'd love us to take away today, uh, the six words at the start of verse eight, because this is the pattern of discipleship for the whole of Mark's gospel. Jesus said, she has done what she could. She's done what she could. That is the thing that makes her response so beautiful in the eyes of Jesus. Not actually the monetary value of the perfume, but the commitment of her heart. Because you might remember, if you were here with us, when we looked at chapter 12, there was a, a widow who put just two small copper coins in a collection box. So no comparison in the value of their gifts. But Jesus was equally excited about what she was doing. And it's because it came from the same heart. She was doing what she could. So the question that I guess I've been trailing all evening so far, what about me? Am I doing what I can to love and serve Jesus? And what about you? And whatever the answer is today, what do we want the answer to be? a year from now, when people are remembering us 10 or 20 years from now. There's an obvious challenge, isn't there? A, a previous generation of preachers would ask their congregation the question, what are the alabaster jars in, in your life or flasks? It might sound a bit twee in our generation, I don't know. But it is a good question to reflect on. What will it look like this year for you, whether you're 18 or 80? What will it look like for you and I to give the king on the cross the kind of love and devotion that he deserves? Am I maybe holding back from him at the moment? Am I wanting to give him a little bit of my heart and mind and soul and strength, but wanting to keep some back in case he demands too much? 
in case I have to give up a sin that I want to cling on to or a relationship that I know isn't good for me or in case Jesus uh, wants to interfere with my worship in the cult of self. If that's me and we want to change, it won't happen by beating ourselves up. It will happen as we come back to the king on the cross and reconsider his worth. There is no doubt about the objective value of Jesus on the cross, supreme value. There's no one more precious than him. There's no thing more precious than his death. Why not ask God the, the spirit to, to work in your heart and to give you a love and devotion for Jesus that is as big as it should be given everything that he's done. Can you imagine what we could achieve by God's grace as a church if all of us this year loved him the way that this woman did? But even though it is challenging, I want to end with comfort. And this is the thought that's meant a lot to me as I've been preparing. And it's that Jesus was delighted that this woman did what she could. I want to say that is all that Jesus ever asks of any of us. And it is very, very liberating. He didn't rebuke her for failing to do what she couldn't. He esteemed her for doing what she could. There are many of us, and I know this for a fact, uh, even in this group, who think that we don't have a great deal to offer Jesus. Whether we're talking about our gifts and our talents, or our knowledge and our insight, or our material resources, we feel more like the, the widow with the copper coins. And if we had an alabaster jar, it feels long since cracked and, and pretty empty in a charity shop rather than in a posh place uh, is where it would be sold. And we look at other people and we think they've got so much more to give Jesus than I do. And we think I must be a permanent disappointment to him as though he's constantly rolling his eyes at me and wondering why I'm not doing more in that kind of I'm frustrated with my teenager kind of way. Uh, I've known ministers who feel paralyzed in their work because they're not as gifted as the guy next door or because their work capacity isn't that high or because their family is less stable than some. I know lots of elders who feel the same. They're weighed down with guilt because they're so busy with, uh, with work and home and they can't do more. And I would be very surprised if there aren't people here this evening who feel exactly the same but am I doing what I can? If I'm holding back, absolutely, I need to stop, rethink, repent. But if I'm doing what I can, then we need to know that Jesus loves it. And that no sacrifice we ever make for him, however small, will ever go unnoticed or unrewarded. And by the same token, no sacrifice, however great, will ever be a waste. We just do what we can. Let me go back to where we started. If the people who knew you best were to try and summarize your faith, your response to Jesus on the cross at the moment in just a single sentence, what would they say about you? And what would you like them to be saying about you a year from now? 
And if you think you're not thrilled with what they'd be saying today, but you would like them to be saying, she's doing what she can. He's doing what he can a year from now. Then I want to encourage you to make sure that you keep your eyes on the, the cross of Jesus and that you invest in your walk with him. And you pray and ask God to help you to love him from the heart in the way that all of us should, though we fail. Because the king on the cross is worthy of everything. So we do what we can. Let's pray together. Our Father, for every one of us, it's simply the case that we don't do all that we can. And we want to admit that freely. And we want to claim again the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes was willing to become poor so that we through his poverty might be made rich. We want to praise you for him. And we want to ask you to help us to esteem and cherish and prize him as we should. And that that would become very, very obvious in our life that whatever our life looks like to others at the moment, that over this next few months, this next term, this next year, whatever age and stage we're at, that we would be those who do increasingly what we can for the Lord Jesus, who are happy to make sacrifices for him because we love him so much. And no matter what kind of response it draws from those around us. So we pray that for our church, we pray it for all the churches in this town and all of your people in our land. What a difference it would make if we loved you as we should. So help us, please, we pray in the precious name of Jesus himself. Amen. We're going to end then by singing a couple of things. We're going to sing from 